What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Blue Wire. After you finish listening to this awesome Blue Wire podcast, make sure you check out the other pods in our Blue Wire family. Okay, I know, you're probably wondering, how do I do that? Well, it's simple. Go to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and search Blue Wire. Ta-da! They will all be there, so have fun listening. Welcome to episode six of the Clip City podcast on Blue Wire. I'm your host, Clippers beat writer for The Athletic, Yovan Buha. Uh, today's episode, we're going to be doing a recap and review of this improbable 2018-19 season for the Clippers. So I brought on my buddy, Justin Jett, uh, NBA writer for Def Pen, and we get into just reviewing this season, how the Clippers got here, what we all got so wrong with, with projecting how good they would be this season. Uh, what broke right for them, who the most important piece has been since the trade deadline, uh, the MVP of the season, Doc Rivers' coaching job, uh, Shea's ceiling moving forward, uh, best moment of the season, how far this team could go in the playoffs. We got it all covered. Uh, we have a nice about 45-minute conversation about that. Uh, but before that, I just wanted to say you know, something that has been uh, on, on mine lately uh, the past 24 hours is the the death of Nipsey Hussle. I uh, wanted to say rest in peace and and shout out to him. Uh, he's not, you know, I, I'm not, I haven't, I'm not going to front and say I'm the biggest Nipsey fan in, in terms of his music. I have not listened to a, a lot of it, um, so I, I can't say that. But I do know uh, the the role he has had in Los Angeles, uh, being an Angelino myself. Um, you know, I've been very well aware of that and, and the impact he's had, um, you know, and his status as as an icon in this community. And, you know, it, I, I live off of sauce, you know, I don't live off of Crenshaw and Slauson, but I do live off of Slauson and uh, I'm you know about 10 minutes from that area. So, you know, that was definitely a shocking thing yesterday. And, and just to see, you know, how the NBA community reacted to it, how the hip hop community reacted to it. Uh, it was just really, really insane just situation and really just showed how much of an impact he's had, not just on, you know, Angelinos, people in LA, Southern California, but uh, across, across the country, across the world. Um, I, I think, you know, he probably didn't even realize how, how big of the impact, uh, you know, he's had. And uh, I think he, he just touched so many people with his, his music, his message, his positivity. So I wanted to shout him out, uh, you know, dedicate this podcast to him. Uh, and, you know, again, you know, it's just a very sad situation and for, for an LA icon, like, you know, that hits home for me because I was born and raised in LA and I, I love LA, I always rep the West coast and, um, you know, so rest in peace to Nipsey, you know, it's, it's hard to transition out of a, a serious somber, uh, topic, but we will now get into this review of the Clipper season. Hopefully that will cheer the people that are, you know, the, the Nipsey fans and, and the people that have been affected by this 
hopefully if you're a Clipper fan and you're listening to this, uh, this can cheer you up a little bit, just the, the topic of how good this season has been for them. But um, I didn't really want to get into any other subject before I uh, started the podcast. So uh, without further ado, here is our conversation reviewing the Clipper season with Justin Jett. I'd like to welcome our fourth guest or my fourth guest to uh, the Clip City podcast, Justin Jett, NBA writer for Def Pen. Uh, he does great features and analysis for them, including stuff on the Clippers, a rising star in the game. How you doing? <laughs> thanks, and thanks for that great intro. Wow, that might be my wow. best intro I've ever had. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, man. No, I, I'm a big fan of your stuff. So I wanted to bring you on to kind of recap the season. Uh, I know you've been at, at Staples Center for how many how many games have you been to this year? Oof, I've probably been to around ten. Okay. Yeah, um, trying to get there as much as I can, but it's gonna. I was gonna guess something along those lines, but uh, you've written some good stuff on the Clippers, and uh, you've been tweeting about them and covering them all season. So uh, I wanted to get into some of the minutia with you. Uh, but first question, I think really the theme of this season has been how improbable everything has been, and and how this team has defied conventional expectations and you know the preseason projections most people had them as like a 10 to 12 seed uh it's looking like they're probably going to be the sixth seed maybe even the fifth seed so how would you recap this season and, and kind of encapsulate it into you know 30 seconds of of you know how you uh, felt the clippers have done yeah, so you you basically summed it up yourself. You said improbable. I was going to go with the word unlikely. Um, I mean, they're only the 17th best defense around the 8th best offense. They didn't have a huge star coming into the year. And with all the Western Conference teams lined up to get into the playoffs, they did not, they did not seem like one that would make it. And they have just kept fighting. They've kept believing in each other. Uh, Lou Williams has been amazing down a stretch of games. I think I saw somewhere they have the best record after being down 15 or more points. Uh, so stuff like that has really helped them. And as everyone has discussed, they are just so incredibly deep. Um, and so even through trades and getting more depth, um, they have really succeeded this season. Yeah, I, I think you you hit the nail on the head with, with all that. Like it, it's just been, I think the biggest thing for me was, was really the post-trade. Like I, I was... I, part of me felt like they were going to be better just because of how bad Avery Bradley and Mar, uh, you know March had been. But you know, losing Tobias, it was like, all right, well, you know, he's he's their best offensive player in my opinion. Uh, you can maybe make the case Gallo is, but at least in terms of volume and and you know, kind of uh, his percentages, like I, I just felt like he he was the more impactful offensive guy. And I was like, all right, so you lose you lose that. You're you're more of an offensive team than a defensive team. You're probably going to take a, a slight step back. And to me, it you know the deals had looked like all right. Well, we're focusing on the off season next season. Uh, maybe we want to keep our pick, but they've just been so much better since the deals. Uh, you know, seventeen and five since their first game together, and you know they actually moved up the standings. You know, not dropped down them. So it's really been a, a crazy season. Uh, I'm a little bit. I'm, my like own worry is just that fans are starting to have unrealistic expectations for how the playoffs are going to go. Mm. And I think they have to remain grounded in reality or like realistically, I think unless this team gets Portland in the first round, they're probably not going to advance, but who knows? Like, uh, again, like I, I didn't, you know, I, I picked them to be my eight seed heading into the season, but that was almost like a, 
you know, I thought there was like 10 or 11 teams in the West that can make the playoffs. And I just wasn't, I wasn't in love with a couple of them. So I just, you know, I was like, all right, Clippers, I could see them being the eight seed, but that was almost just like a, you know, a guess. And, and, you know, for them to pretty much be in the playoff picture the entire season, I think is, is just been amazing. And, and, you know, the fact that they could still finish, you know, fifth, potentially they could still win 50 games. Like it, it's just been a crazy season. Yeah. So I was a lot like you after the trade, I went, okay. Um, I think they're going to take a step down. They got two good young players, but you know, they have so much youth. I didn't think it was going to really translate to this season. Add to the fact that they get their first round pick back. If they don't make the playoffs, I thought it was all in line to have this amazingly young core, get all of these draft picks. I thought it was amazing. Even if they missed the playoffs this year, I thought the trade was amazing. What it gives them the rest of the next few years would be amazing. Um, but I really just didn't appreciate the impact that um, a guy like Zubac and Shamit would have. Um, I mean, pre-All-Star break, the Clippers were second in three-point percentage, but only shooting about 25 per game. They're still second in three-point percentage after the All-Star break, but now shooting 29 threes per game. So they have the same efficiency, but they're just taking more shots. And if you know anything about three-point shooting, the more the better. So it's really been amazing. And then with Zubac, I mean, he has had a better plus minus than even Montrez Harrell, who has been great off the bench. So he has been really good in that starter spot. And if you think about the upgrade from Gortat to Zubac, that is a huge step. I mean, they were negative 1,000 with Gortat in the starting lineup. (laughs) So to have a guy who can come in there and still give you solid minutes and then have Montrez come off the bench, it has just been amazing for them. Yeah, I, I wrote about it a, a couple of weeks ago that Zubots has really, you know, transformed their defense and, and the defensive rating with him. It's dropped a bit these last couple of weeks since I wrote the story. I almost felt like I've cursed certain guys when I write about them. Like I wrote about Ty Wallace beginning to hit threes and then he stopped hitting threes. And it's just been kind of a funny ongoing thing with uh, with me and uh, Miriam Swanson from the uh, Orange County Register. But uh, yeah, like Zubots has really helped defensively. Um, you know, I, I, for that story, some of the people I spoke with were like, well, really, the, the, the upgrade has just been Gortat to Zubats. Like, it's yeah. almost been because he's not Gortat that they're better defensively, you know. Exactly. Like, you got to give Zubats his credit, but it, it's almost like an addition by subtraction or, you know, yeah. Uh, so, going back, though, to the preseason expectations, this is something I've been thinking a lot about recently because the Clippers, you know, it's, it's a blue chip team. Uh, you know, a bunch of underdogs, a bunch of guys who've been written off in, in various capacities throughout their careers. And something that they've kind of, you know, been been promoting lately has just been this, like, you know, we're way more talented than, than people have given us credit. And, mm. um, you know, we knew we were this good. And, and, you know, that's been that kind of mentality from a lot of the players. So do you think that is true? And, and we were just kind of overlooking how good a guy like Danilo Gallinari is or Lou Williams or Pat Beverly, or did a lot of things break right for them? Like the Lakers flaming out the way they did uh, the Timberwolves having all that Jimmy drama to start the season. Uh, You know, the Pelicans falling out of the playoff picture with the AD stuff. Like, you know, a lot of these teams that we thought would maybe be in that like six to eight range in in the playoff picture really fell out. And and there was this, this gulf at the bottom of the, the West playoff picture that the, Clippers kind of stepped into uh so which one like do you think we're just you know underrating them or has a lot of things broken right for them that that maybe if the Lakers were better or the 80s stuff didn't happen maybe we'd be talking about the Clippers as like a nine or ten seed 
Well, it's a little bit of both. And to start with, I think NBA players and all professional athletes rightfully always view themselves a little bit better than they think they're perceived. And it might not even be an accurate uh, perception of their um, how they're perceived, but every player thinks they're better. I mean, you had the Wizards in the beginning of the year praising Jeff Green, <laughs> saying he's going to be basically LeBron. He's basically LeBron's talent level. <laughs> so you have you always have that. You have players who feel discounted. They feel like they're way better than their projections. So there, it's a little bit of that. And then, like you said, there's these teams, Lakers having LeBron injury, then the trade issue, then the Timberwolves having those internal issues, and then the Anthony Davis again with the trade, destroying another team in the Pelicans. So it, it's a little bit of both. I think what happens a lot with young teams as well is you're not sure when they're going to make that jump. So you know that the Clippers have talent, but you also know they're really young. They have a lot of young guys, unproven, not top of the draft pick guys. And they had promise, but you just don't know when that promise is going to become reality. And I think it became reality a lot quicker than people expected it to happen. A hundred percent. And and I, I think that I, I do think we were underrating uh, the, and I think that's, you know, to get into Doc, I just wrote something today about how I think he really has an underrated coach of the year candidacy. Mm. Uh, I think Mike Budenholzer is probably going to win, and and rightfully so. He, he's, you know, I think he, he's had a Steve Kerr type uh, effect on the Bucks, yeah. taking them from a lower, you know, lower tier playoff team to, uh, you know, a historic regular season team right now. But the the job Doc has done, and and you know, getting guys like. Uh, you know, just in this tenure with the Clippers, getting guys like Lou Williams and Jamal Crawford and Montrez Harrell to really buy into their roles off the bench. And, you know, I think in thinking of guys like that, their ideal role probably is, you know, sixth, seventh man on, on a really good team. But in all three instances, they've been, you know, behind guys worse than that. You know, like Jamal Crawford was behind like Willie Green and, uh, you know, Randy Foy and then eventually JJ Redick. Uh, but like Lou, you know, Lou should be starting on, you know, if you're just going by by merit and talent and skill, like Lou should be starting on this team. You know, Montrez was a much better player than, than Marcin Gortat. And I, I think he's a better player than Abita Zubats. Like, you know, based on uh, production and, and talent, like those guys should be starting. But the, the job that Doc has done, getting this team to buy into their roles, you know, you got a lot of guys in contract years, a lot of guys where you don't know what your future is going to be with the team. Uh, even a guy like Shea, uh, for for as good as he is, and uh, you know as much of a you know foundation piece he seems to be for the Clippers, like if Anthony Davis becomes available for and is interested in coming to the Clippers, like you got to think about potentially including Shea in that. So like really, no one on this roster is safe or untouchable. And I think the fact that Doc was able to get everyone to buy in uh, really speaks to his coaching ability and, and you know his coaching performance this season. But I do think we we did collectively underrate how good Danilo Gallinari is. I mm. said it on on Fox Sports yesterday. Like, I think he has a he has a sneaky case to be an All NBA, uh, you know, forward. Like, I I think there's five locks. Uh, you know, uh, KD, Giannis, Paul George, Kawhi, and LeBron. And then that that last forward spot, I would probably go Blake Griffin or Lamarcus Aldridge. But statistically, Danilo Gallinari is right there with those two. Mm-hmm. And the Clippers have a better record than than the Spurs. Uh, you know, Blake will probably get it or, or, you know, maybe LaMarcus. But I do think Daniil Gallinari is someone that we have not talked about enough. And, you know, he, he had an all-star case, I think. I think now he has a, a, an all-NBA case, at least as a candidate. And, uh, you know, he in particular is someone that I just don't think has been given enough credit. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And 
Uh, I think as well the doc has not been given enough credit, but he also has done some a little bit of head-scratching things this season. You talked about having Gortat starting. You talked about uh, Bradley, Avery Bradley starting almost – or uh, I'm sorry, averaging almost 30, point, or 30 minutes per game. Um, there's some stuff that he's done this season that hasn't made a lot of sense and has not worked. Avery Bradley shot 38% as a clipper. And he was still getting the majority of the minutes, even over Shea, who has proven with his newfound minutes now that he can be very, very productive. Uh, so, so he's obviously helped with the guys on the bench with Lou and Montrez, but he also has done some things that I think have hurt this team. I think really, like you said, is the talent. Danilo, when healthy, is an amazing player, and he's been mostly healthy this season, knock on wood. Um, I thought he was better than Tobias Harris. He's been shooting better, and I thought he was better defensively. He was better at guarding guards he was better at guarding wings uh, i think toby's a little bit overrated on the defensive end um uh, so like you said i yeah. think it was mostly about the talent of this team i they, all they did really was get healthy guys danilo danilo was healthy patrick beverly was healthy um so i i think that really contributed more than doc did uh but doc has done an amazing job with this team no doubt and, and i think you you brought up a good point too because i think if we uh, like factoring in the proje- you know when you're doing a projection you got to factor in um, you know, history and and team's tendencies. And for this team, this is was a very injury-prone team. Like, yeah. I, I think the injury-prone label gets thrown around a lot, but Danilo Gallinari is injury-prone. If you look at, you know, how many games he plays every year, you got to pencil him in for 15 to 20 games missed. And it's not always the same, you know, it's not like a recurring, th- it's it's different injuries. He always gets nicked up every season. This is really the first season in, in you know, like six or seven years where he, he's been relatively healthy. Uh, but but even got you know Pat Beverly was, was coming off a major injury. Avery Bradley um, and you know Gortat is is thirty four and Lou's thirty two and like you you just weren't sure about the health and and the regression of some of these guys. But everyone stayed healthy. The weak spots in the rotation they ended up waving or trading them. And you know overall like I, I didn't I didn't think this team was like ten deep before the trade deadline because of Gortat and Bradley. But after the trade deadline, like they're solid ten deep, maybe even eleven, depending on what you're getting from from Wilson and Ty. Like this team is really, really deep. Uh, so uh, of the new guys, it seemed you know we just talked about Zubats, but mm-hmm. you think he's been the most important of, of the new pieces acquired, uh, or is it is it Shamit? Is it Jermichael? Like I think all three are kind of similar, but uh, I mean I'm, I'm interested to get your take on that. Well, it's interesting because we talked about Zubac taking the place of Gortat, but Shamit is a guy who took the place of, you could say, Avery Bradley or even Shea when Shea was in that role. Um, so the jump up, I would say Zubac is higher, but Shamit's shooting ability has really done wonders for this team. As I said, they're still second in three-point percentage while averaging five more attempts per game. That's huge. I mean, that's, what, six and a half points a game, seven points a game extra that they didn't have before um, the trade. So when it comes to those guys, I would really lean Shamit. And I think, especially for the future, Shamit is going to be amazing. Um, I absolutely cannot wait to see how his career unfolds. He's been, he's been awesome for this team. Yeah, he's, he's got the second best three-point uh, rookie percentage behind Steph Curry and ahead of Clay Thompson. So that's, that's, wild. that's very impressive. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say Shamit too. Uh, you know, he had that... Like to me, the moment of the season was that that comeback victory in Boston. Uh, you know, that was their first game together as a new unit. They got down by 28 points. It was kind of like, 
all right, here it comes, here comes the tank, mm-hmm. you know, this team isn't that good. And then they, you know, and maybe, who knows, maybe that speaks more to Boston's issues than anything. But, you know, the Clippers rallied from 28 points down. Uh, Shamit hit four threes in the fourth quarter. And, you know, they, they, they won that game and really since then have been rolling. So I, w- I would agree with you. I think Landry has been the most consistent uh, of the of the four. What do you think about Jamichael? Jamichael, I think, so I, I tweeted this out after, um, you know, after his first few games. But Jamichael is the actualized version of Mike Scott. Like what mm. you wanted from Mike Scott is what Jamichael Green is providing. Oh, interesting. So Mike, uh, you know, so my personal pet peeve in with basketball players, NBA, whatever, uh, is shooters who can't shoot. You know, yeah. these guys who have that reputation of, you know, they're in the league or or they're, you know, getting playing time because they're they're shooters. But then you look at their shooting percentages, you look at their game logs, and it's like, why is this guy always going one for four if he's a shooter? Uh, and it felt like that with Mike Scott. Like, I think he had, he won like two months, uh, I want to say from mid-November to mid-January, where he didn't hit more than two threes in a game. And it was just like, this guy's playing 12 to 15 minutes a night. And all he's doing is really spotting up and, and taking threes. And he can't make more than two threes in a game. Yeah, we call this the James Ennis. <laughs> yeah. So, so I felt like Jamichael has been what you wanted from Mike. You know, he, he's been provi- shooting 41% on threes, which has been, you know, uh, maybe a little bit of fool's gold, but you got to roll with it for now. Uh, and, and def- you know, but he's a tough, he's a tough guy. Uh, you know, defensively has been solid. Has been able to switch kind of three through five. Uh, you know, uh, against Dallas, they put him on Luca, and you know, for a few possessions, and he did did well against Luca. Um, you know, he, he's been a solid rebounder, and I, I just think you know his biggest value right now has just been the spacing offensively. He's provided the second unit because you know where the Clippers have put him on the court often is you know, on the weak side, either in the corner or on you know the wing where you really have to make a tough decision when they're running that Lou Trez pick and roll. You know, are we going to collapse on Trez? Are we going to shade over to towards Lou? Are we going to leave Jermichael in the, in the corner? Uh, like he's made that a tough decision. And I feel like, you know, that was the goal with Mike Scott, but he just wasn't really producing the way that Jermichael has been. And, you know, I talked to him last week and he was saying like for him, the, the, the counter to that, because now teams are trying to run him off the three-point line, He's really putting the ball on the floor and you know working on driving from the three point line and getting to the rim and I think he's he's done that better. So to me, I mean, I really think you can make the case like any of the three have been as impactful because Zubats, you know, we've talked a little bit about his defense, but like his rim protection numbers are really really impressive. They're you know not the elite Joel Embiid, Rudy Gobert type level, but they're right below that in like that second or third tier uh, of defensive big men. So. I think Zubats has a strong case for this. I think Jermichael has helped change the bench. It's kind of the eighth man now. And I think Landry has been, you know, like you said, the three-point shooting has really changed with him. So I, I, I think you can go any of the three ways with those, with those three. But overall, and I'll include Doc in this, who do you think has been the MVP of the Clippers season? Because I, I think there's a lot of ways you could take this. It could be Doc. It could be Lou. It could be Gallo. It could be the front office. It could be Steve Mott, like whoever you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Who has been the most important person or or entity in the success of the Clippers this season? Well, I would say for wins this season for how, for their production this season, I don't think they win nearly as many games as they do without Lou Williams. I mean, 
down the stretch of games, he has been crucial. When their offense has absolutely died, he has brought it back to life and really been the driving force to wins. Um, I mean, he's one of two parts of the one of the best pick and roll duos in the game, so that has helped a lot. And then just his isolation shooting, his ability to draw fouls, any shoot anywhere on the court, he has been absolutely amazing down the stretch of games. Um, and I think without him in those moments, they don't really have another guy that they could go to that could get them a bucket. I mean, Shea is amazing, but he can't really go and get a bucket whenever he wants. Pat, the same thing. Those guys are really good in their roles, but Lou, when they need a shot, they're going to get a good one from him um, every single time. So he's my MVP for the Clippers this season. Um, what about you? So I, I've struggled with this because for me, I've gone back and forth with Lou and Gallo. Uh, I think that I would go with Lou, though. It's for all the reasons you just said. My my thing with Lou is that I, I think for whatever reason, he's one of those players where we just tend to overlook or ignore his weaknesses. And, you know, so he, he gets the credit when he scores mm. all points in the fourth quarter or he hits the game-winning shot or he drops 30 off the bench. But when he has the four for 15 night or he has the night where, you know, his man gets a a crucial offensive rebound or scores on him like three straight possessions, we don't really flame him for that. And I don't know what that is. Maybe it's just because he's so well liked and he's this kind of calm, cool, collected figure. And like, you know, his, his Q rating is through the roof throughout the NBA. So everybody loves Lou, but I do think like he, he does, you know, for as much as he brings to the table, he does take a lot off of it, especially defensively. Uh, You know, all the numbers still suggest he's one of the worst defensive players in the league. And, you know, I think it's something I've tried to to monitor all season. Like you, you do notice teams, you know, especially in the fourth quarter when he's playing against starting, you know, starting lineups or starting, you know, starter heavy units, teams will target him and, and they'll run actions against him. They will send, you know, the guy he's defending to crash the offensive glass. And I think that's something that is going to be really interesting to, to see in the playoffs as far as, you know, again, as much as Lou's going to bring to the table, especially in the fourth and in critical moments, you know, if you're playing the wrong team, uh, you know, take, for example, the Warriors, it's going to be really hard to hide him and not have him be a massive liability on that end. So like I think Gallo takes less off the table uh you know if anything Gallo I mean the reason I wouldn't pick Gallo is I I think Gallo doesn't shoot enough I I think Gallo a lot of times will have these like eight to twelve uh you know point quarters to to start the the first quarter and then he just kind of disappears over you know maybe he'll he'll score a little bit in the third and then you're like how did you have 18 20 points when when you had like 12 or 14 at halftime Uh, so that would be my one criticism of Gallo and I know I've, I've talked to people around the Clippers that are like, he, he, you know, if we try to get him to shoot more, like he, especially from three, like threes, Gallo is one of the best three point shooters in the league. He should be taking like eight to 10 threes a game. That's not always the case with him. Uh, so I would lean Lou because this team has been, as a lot of people predicted, in every game. And, and there's been so many games that have come down to crunch time, final possessions, final minutes. And Lou has really been the guy to guide them home in those instances. He's been arguably the most clutch player in the league this season. So I would slightly go Lou. Uh, he's also le- leadership-wise probably the leader in the locker room, him or Pat. So overall, I, I would lean towards Lou slightly, but I think you're really splitting hairs between him and Gallo. 
Yeah, I, I like that argument a lot. I, th- I think the 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 most impactful thing you just said right now is that Lou does give up a lot of buckets. And so maybe a lot of those close games they were in, maybe they wouldn't be in them if he wasn't on the floor giving them up. Um, so that that is a, a decent argument. But like you said, Danilo, Danilo does have a lot of his points, a lot of his shots in the first half, uh, and then he does kind of fade away. Um, but but I did I did like that argument. So you, you brought up Shea, and, and you know I think this is a good transition because you know you you wrote about him. I've written about him. Uh, you know he he's this really interesting prospect that I, I think has gotten you know I, I can't remember. I mean I guess I it's not. True. I was gonna say I can't remember a guy like drafting the late lottery getting this much hype, but Donovan Mitchell last year, I guess, would be a, a great recent example. But like Shea's this really interesting guy because I think you know for you have all these flashes w- with him and you see the potential, and I think we all probably can see him one day being an all star type guy. Um, but he's he hasn't had the the, the type of leash uh, that a guy like Luca or, or Trey. Or, or even Colin Sexton have had. Um, so it, it is kind of tough to to gauge. Like you, you see him in a team setting and, and, you know, how he fits in the pecking order. And, um, you know, he does have his games where he, he'll have, you know, 17, 18, 20 points. But then he has his, his nights like last night. I think he had like six points and, and only took a few shots. So where are you with Shea and his, you know, development throughout the season um, and, and kind of what you think his ceiling is? Yeah, so uh, he hasn't really th- throughout the whole season. I've kind of viewed him the same, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because from jump, I don't know why, but there's some players you can just tell that they know how to play basketball, that they're in control, they know the right move, and they're more times than not going to make it. And although his stats don't pop off the screen, I think if someone was simply looking at stats, didn't watch a game, they would overlook Shea in a second. Um, and like you said, I wrote about him. That happened a lot in his career. He's not a flashy player. Um, his high school coach, I believe, really said he's not a flashy player. He is not, but he is a solid player who's going to get the job done and do it well and do it consistently. Um, and so he's kind of in, like, he's kind of having controlled growth. So throughout the season, his stats have gotten better. I don't think he necessarily looks any better. I mean, maybe his three point shot does. Um, that has certainly grown throughout the year. He's getting a little more comfortable with it. I have always yeah. liked how his um, shot has looked. I mean, from mid-range, it looks great. Um, it just from three, he he in the beginning of the year, it looked a little wonky. He looked like he was forcing it. He wasn't sure what to do, how much pressure to put on his legs. So that has certainly grown throughout the year. But I think he's going to be a fantastic player. Um, and it, it, that hasn't changed at all throughout the year. And his numbers are creeping up, up, up. I mean, he's at 30%, 38% from three, um, which is a really solid number for him. Um, and I just absolutely love what he does on the basketball court. Yeah, we're we're in agreement yet again. <laughs> I think we've agreed on both things so far, but it makes for a bad yeah, pot. I mean, all disagreeing. Yeah. We gotta we gotta find something to disagree <laughs> on. Uh, my my thing with Shea, I, I think the three point shooting has been the biggest development, and it's not necessarily the way he shot. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think his form has largely stayed the same, but. I feel like it, just his assertiveness overall with, with threes. I felt like earlier in the season he would pass up open threes, um, and he, you know, now I feel like he anytime he's open, he's probably going to take the shot, and he just seems more comfortable and assertive out there with, with that. And and then the the second thing for for me that I think he he's gotten better at is 
I think he played with this pace and, and he had this, you know, kind of old man game. And, and, you know, a lot of people are saying he looks wise beyond his years. And, you know, part of that is working with Sam Cassell and stuff. But for me, I think he, he's started to change gears a little bit more. And, and, you know, he's not as much, I, I mean, I don't think, I just don't think he's playing as slow as he did earlier in the season. And, and now you're starting to see him, the, the, the burst and the explosion. And I just feel like his finishing around the rim, uh, a lot of times he was trying to use his length and, and sort of time things out more where now he's just kind of exploding. And once he's getting into the paint, he's just kind of knifing his way to the rim, uh, you know, rather than maybe thinking about it a little bit more, trying to be like, what, what's the right angle? What, you know, I just felt like you, you saw the, the wheels spinning in his head a little bit more where now he's just like, all right, I'm in the paint. I'm knifing through, I'm slithering through, like I'm, I'm a skinny dude. I'm long. I can get by people. And I, I just think you, you've kind of seen him finishing with more power and more explosion. Uh, but I, to me, I think Shea has all-star potential. I, I think when you see him really engaged and, and, firing on all cylinders, you know, to me, he looks like a guy who at some point in his career could be like an 18, like an 18, five and six guy, which I think gets you in the all-star conversation, especially if he's a all defense uh, type guy defensively, which I think he could get there. Um, I've been a little bit disappointed with his defense. I think it's been very up and down. Uh, he does tend to get blown by a lot on the perimeter and then try to kind of react to that by reaching or trying to get, uh, you know, come from behind blocks, which sometimes works, but I, I would like to see him kind of keep guys in front of him better. But overall, like I, I think Shea is, uh, I think he's a blue chip guy. I think if you're comparing to go to the AD trade for, for a second, again, like if you're comparing the Clippers package to the Lakers package, uh, I would put Shea up there with anyone from the Lakers. And, and I, you know, maybe Brandon Ingram is slightly ahead of him with the, you know, the wrong, he just went on uh, before he got injured, but uh, I think Shea's, you know, I would put him ahead of Lonzo. I'd put him ahead of Kuzma. I'd put him ahead of anyone else on the Lakers. And uh, I think if the right team is sold on him, they might be, you know, willing to part with a, a star for, for a cheaper price just because, you know, you think he's really good. But uh, yeah, no, I, I'm really, I think Shea is playing great lately, especially the last month. And I'm really excited to see what he does in the playoff. Do you see any um, corollaries between Shea and Kawhi? Kawhi was not a big time recruit. wasn't I don't believe he was a high draft pick. Uh, and then he slowly developed. He was always solid, but not great. He always had that great defense. Their numbers are actually pretty similar. I mean, Shea is a much better passer than Kawhi ever was uh, when he was that age. I mean, they both come, came into the league at 20. I kind of see him on the Kawhi plan, if you will, maybe not with the finals MVPs, depending on, you know, what moves the Clippers make this offseason. But I kind of see him on a similar route. I mean, they have kind of similar personalities. Shea's a really laid back guy, family guy, homebody. So I, I see a little bit of similarities between those two. I actually see that, too. Uh, I think and I think you, you know, there's almost a there always felt like there, there was like a mechanical aspect to Kawhi's yes. uh, game early on. And, and, you know, not, not, not to make any Spurs jokes or like robot jokes. Cause those have all been made before, but like there was that kind of like, he was just very fundamental and, and the way he played was just almost like, 
it was almost too fundamental at times. And I feel like that was the biggest, uh, you know, development in his game was just kind of going with the flow more and, and just, um, you know, being just his movements being a little more seamless and, and not as structured or, or robotic. And I feel like you, you've seen some of that with Shea where I do feel like now, you know, he, he was very polished and, and very mechanical with some of his stuff. And now he's just kind of going out there and, and playing and kind of trusting that he, he can still do that stuff without thinking about it as much. So, but I do see a lot of similarities. I mean, obviously there's just the positional differences where mm-hmm. Shea is more of a point guard and, and Kawhi was more of a wing and a little bit of a size difference there. But um, I think, you know, and look uh, for, for, as good a you know, uh, well, Kawhi, I can't even say he. I, I don't. I don't even know what Kawhi wears, but I was gonna say, uh, <laughs> you know, like the, Kawhi doesn't have the the drip of of Shea. Ooh, you know, okay. I don't mind my drip. Um, that that's Shea's patented hashtag. Uh, so dressing wise, you can't really compare the two. But and Shea, Shea he's laid back and quiet, but he's got that low key confidence. Yeah. And, and when you ask him stuff, he's always he always defaults to like the the most confident answers. So. Uh, you know, he, he is a Kentucky guy where I, I'm sure there's a, there's a difference there between that and SDSU, but no, I mean, in terms of like the silent killer, uh, very fundamental two-way guys, like I, I do see similarities between them. Um, so no, you got to go soon, but last couple of questions. Uh, what was your favorite moment of the season? I think there's a lot to pick from. Uh, I think I spoiled my favorite moment earlier in the season, but, or earlier in this podcast, but, uh, you know, what, what was your favorite moment or what moment stuck out to you as the most memorable? Well, since you gave yours away, how about, how about you go first? I, I want to hear yours. Uh, the, the Boston comeback. And selfishly for me, I, I was being heckled by, uh, by two Boston fans the, the entire game. So that also made the game more memorable because it was the first time I've ever been heckled at a basketball game. But uh, that, that game, it was just such an, you know, it, it basically to me, it like summed up the season where it was just such an improbable comeback. Like, you know, a 28 point deficit, I, even though it was like, I think it was early in the second quarter, like that is a massive deficit at any point in a basketball game, especially on the road against a tough Eastern Conference opponent. Uh, you know, a team that was going through a lot of turmoil, still is, but was kind of looking for a rallying point, had just lost that game to the Lakers. So you'd think like, you know, they're fired up, they're amped up, they, they want to come out and smack the Clippers and send a message. And they were doing that for for the first you know quarter and a half of that game, but for the Clippers to come back from that uh, with half a you know brand new rotation, you know four new guys in the rotation. We haven't even mentioned Garrett Temple, who I think has been a, a nice defender on, on the second unit, especially with Pat Beverly moving to the starting lineup. They kind of needed another defensive guy to put next to Lou. I think Garrett has played that well, uh, that role really well. But to me, it was just the Boston game because it was you know if, if I wanted to show someone a encapsulation of the 2018, 19 Clippers, I would show them that game and just be like, you know, this has been their season when, you know, when you count them out, when you think they're going to lose, when you think their backs against the wall, when you think they're going to give up, they somehow pull it out. They, they rally, um, they, they pull off the improbable, they defy conventional wisdom. And that's really what they've done all season. So to me, that was the most memorable because I, I remember you know, think I, I knew I was going to write off that game, some type of impression of the new guys. And I was starting to be like, all right, well, here comes, you know, here comes the tank. Here comes the the Clippers not being, you know, they've kind of given up on the season and all of a sudden they pulled out the game. So to me, that that's my favorite moment. All right. For me, it'll probably be the Clippers beating the Lakers and essentially putting the Lakers 
hopes of the playoffs just out of reach. Um, that that just kind of shows yeah. you what this team has been. I mean, you have Pat Beverly <laughs> talking about they're the best team in LA. They're going to make the playoffs. So that that moment really kind of shows who they've been, like you said, with the Boston win. Um, this game, I mean, four of the five stars shoot over 50%. Lou Williams is the second leading scorer. Uh, and then just, you know, metaphorically, Los Angeles Clippers, I mean, you don't really equate, people don't equate Los Angeles to the Clippers. They equate to the Lakers. And, I mean, they have been better than the Lakers for much of the last half decade. But um, that moment, them beating them, Lakers being out, that's kind of shown the unlikeliness of their season and just it really all coming together. So so that win was, was big for, for them mentally and then I think big for just the casual fan being like, okay, yeah, these Clippers are really good. I, I mean, I hear it all the time for people. The Clippers are are better than most people thought, and they, they're a fun team to watch. Yeah, that, that was my number two moment. And, and the thing I loved about that was, Pat, uh, the game before, it was the rare – well, they just had it this weekend too, but it was the rare weekend home back – or, you know, staples back-to-back for them uh, where they played the Knicks in a Sunday, uh, Saturday morning game. Then they played the Lakers that, that Sunday night. And, you know, Pat, after after the first game, comes into the locker room and was like, um, you know, I told y'all motherfuckers we were the best team in L.A. And, you know, we're, we're pr- basically we're proving it now. And it was like, you know, there was seven people here at, at Media Day. And now look how many people are in our locker room. And, and you know, he wanted he wanted the LeBron matchup. He was like, put me on LeBron. You know, he was yelling it out. Uh, and then, you know, the, the, the next day when they were playing the Lakers, I, I heard pregame that he was going to be guarding LeBron. Um, and I was like, all right, like, this is going to be super interesting. And then, you know, he was guarding him, frustrating him a little bit, uh, you know, p- picked up an offensive foul and like, he, he was just doing his thing and, and that's what Pat does. And then after the game, he was calling everybody out, uh, again. And, um, you know, that, that's what Pat does. So I, I think that that's up there right there with the Boston game. Uh, you know, but uh, I mean, there's there's so many. Like I think the 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 Warriors win that almost sent the Warriors into a tailspin um, and and almost ruined their season. They also had the Bucks win. Those were back to back wins. Um, you know, the, the Lou Williams game winner against the Nets, which I felt like really sealed his case as Sixth Man of the Year and was kind of like the the moment for that award. Uh, they've had a lot of those moments, um, but so. Transitioning to the last question, uh, I think looking at it an outward thing, um, you know, we're at the end of the regular season. We we agreed that this has been an improbable season. They're going to win. You know, they're at forty-seven wins right now. They're probably going to win forty-nine games at a minimum, if not fifty. Uh, you know, they'll be probably the five or six seed. How far can this team go in the playoffs? You know, is the semifinals a realistic goal now? Uh, is it just six or seven games, hard fought first round series? Is it five games? Like, I mean, if you told you know, if you told me this team got swept in the first round, I honestly wouldn't be that surprised. You know, I, th- I think there is a, still a talent disparity between them and other teams, but you could also tell me they they lose in seven or, or they make the second the semifinals, like. I don't know. What what are your realistic expectations for this team in the first round of the playoffs? So I think it really depends on who they play because right now they are playing the Rockets first round. No, I don't think they go very far against this Rockets team and what 
Harden yeah. had put up this year. But if they face a team like the Blazers or the Jazz, uh, I think they have a much higher likelihood of making it to the next round. And so they're going to be fighting to get higher. I mean, they're dead even with the Jazz right now. Uh, and so if they're able to get a fourth or fifth seed, which would put them against teams that they can really beat, um, then I, I, would, I wouldn't bet against them. Um, so I think it really, really depends on the teams. I think they even could give the Nuggets um, a run for their money. I really just think it's the Warriors and Rockets if they somehow land on those teams that they're going to have a hard time. Other than that, this is a team that has surprised us all year. And so you shouldn't be surprised if they make it to the second round past a team maybe like the Spurs or the Jazz or the Blazers. So not much of a surprise here. We're in agreement again. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of to an extent. So I think at this point, it's looking like, I mean, I guess they could technically, like really the only way they'd play the Jazz would be if the Blazers collapsed. Um, And I just don't, because it would probably have to be four or five or Portland drops to like six. I don't see the Jazz getting to like three uh, and passing Houston. So I, I would, I mean, for them to play, you know, one of those two would have to, or I guess both of them would have to pass the Blazers. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I just don't know how realistic that is. So for me, it's really looking at the the, the top four seeds right now. And I also just wrote about this, but I, I think the Blazers are, I mean, the Blazers to me are cl- like, clearly the team you want in round one, even more than probably the Spurs or the Clippers. I've never really been a believer in the Blazers. Uh, Last season, I picked them in seven over the Pelicans, but that was just me being chicken to not pick the Pelicans. I really wanted to. Uh, And then you saw what happened. And, you know, I I didn't feel like they should have gotten past the Clippers in, in 2016. I think the Clippers would have won that series had Chris Paul and Blake Griffin not both gone down in game four. Like, I, I just think they're a very schemable team. You know what you have to do. You got to send two on the ball, trap Dame, trap CJ, make everyone else beat you, and they just don't have the shooters. Like, you know, unless you're playing Seth Curry 30 minutes a night uh, or Rodney Hood gets really hot, like, they just don't have the shooting, and, and those guys are going to take away stuff, you know, on the defensive end. So, to me, I, you know, now that Nurkic is gone, I think Portland is is clearly the best-case scenario. Like, to, to me, the best-case scenario would probably be Houston somehow, you know, like Clippers beat Houston on Wednesday. Houston falls into the four or five. Portland is three. Mm-hmm. Clippers are six. They play Portland, beat them in, I don't know, six games. And then Denver stays at two and they play Denver in the second round. And I don't think they would beat Denver, but I think they could push Denver to maybe six games, maybe seven, who knows. And then now you're looking at the season in a totally different light where. You know, it's not just an, you know, it's a significant overachievement. And you're really like, we are one piece away from being a, a legitimate contender, uh, you know, a significant piece. But, you know, you get Kawhi or KD on that team. Like, I think that's a 55 to 58 win team. And they're, they're right there be behind the Warriors or whoever else that's ahead of them. So to me, I, I, I agree with you. I think it depends on who they play. I really only think Portland is the is the only team they could beat realistically in round one. Hmm. Uh, I think Denver beats them, uh, especially because De- Denver. I mean, they put up a one hundred and one offensive rating against Denver in the four games. Like Denver has really shut them down. They got their ass kicked both games in Denver. Uh, Jokic has torched them. Uh, you know the shooters. Uh, Denver has eight guys averaging double figures against the Clippers this year. Like Denver has, has lit them up, and I just don't think they could defend them. 
Uh, Houston, like you said, you know, Houston's been the best team in the West for the last 50 games, uh, you know, statistically and by record. I would not want to face the Rockets in in round one or really any round. And then Golden State's Golden State. Like, you you know, you don't want to play Golden State. So to me, as long as the Clippers can avoid, you know, Houston or, or Golden State, I think they have a competitive first round series that who knows, maybe they win. But I, I do think for, for the fans, like saying semifinals or bust, like mm. you got to tone that down. Uh, you know, I, I think – a, a, maybe a realistic over under would be like two two wins in the first round, and I think you get your two wins that that's a successful season, uh, unless you're playing Portland, maybe. So, so you're saying Blazers? They can beat the Blazers, but aside from that, you'd be a little bit worried. You're not confident enough to say they would beat another team. Yeah, I think I think right now my official predictions would be Clippers over Blazers in six. Okay. Uh, Nuggets over Clippers in six. Rockets over Clippers in five and Warriors sweeping Clippers. Okay. Be my, my four predictions of the, the four most likely opponents. All right. Yeah. I think I would go, I think I would go, they'd beat the Blazers. I think they could beat the jazz also. Um, and then I think maybe Houston in four, um, Denver in seven and then the Warriors also in four. Uh, th- those two teams are just, just much, much better. I think. Yeah. I'm, I'm of the belief, like, you know, I've seen some people even wanting Golden State. Well, a lot of Clipper fans want Houston, and, and that's oh, wow. really surprised me. And, and I, I just wrote about that in my thing because I, I did – I ranked them from, from you know, the team you should most want to play to the team you should least want to play. Uh, so it was Portland, Denver, Houston, Golden State. But I, I said in the Houston section, like, I've been very surprised a lot of Clipper fans – and they've been referencing that the Clippers beat Houston twice – uh, but they beat them in October, and you know Chris and James, you know each missed one of those games. The, that's when the Rockets were at their nadir. They started the season off eleven and fourteen. They were really struggling, and James was not at the level he, he's been at the last you know three four months. So I don't think you could base a potential Clippers Rockets matchup off of two games in the first two weeks of the of the regular season. Yeah. Those last 50 games, Houston has the second best record and the second best net rating in the league behind the Bucks. I do not think you want to play that team. I do not. I think that would be a shootout, and I, don't, I just don't think the Clippers have the weapons to win that type of shootout. So I'm with you. Like I, I would probably go five, just because I think the Clippers, you know, would would somehow grind out one win. But I, it could easily be a like I think it'd be more likely to be a sweep than than a six game series. So um, that that's where that's where we're at. But look. As we started the podcast off with, uh, I think that this is a nice, you know, closing loop. Uh, you know, this te- this has been an improbable season. Yep. I don't think any of us saw this team winning 50 games or, or being a five seed. So who knows? You know, maybe they make the Western Conference Finals, and we all just look stupid with egg on our face uh, in a couple months. But <laughs> um, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on this podcast, man. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter and Instagram? They can find me on Twitter. I'm mostly on Twitter uh, with the basketball stuff. It's Justin Jet, Jet with two T's, uh, underscore. Had to get that underscore in there. (laughs) You're almost forced to at this point on Twitter. Okay, man. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, are you going to be at the playoffs at all? I will. I'll be uh, at every game. They have a playoff game there. I'll be there. Awesome. All right, man. Well, I'll see you soon then. See you then. All right, guys, we got an announcement to make. Blue Wire is teaming up with Harry's to make sure our listeners are shaving comfortably. Go to harrys.com backslash blue wire to save $10 on a value trial set, which includes 
a five blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, a rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. You get all of that for just $3 shipped right to your door. Enough with the cheap razors, it's totally worth trying Harry's. Harry's is fixed shaving by combining a simple, clean design with quality and durable blades at a fair price. Harry's founders were tired of paying for razors that were overpriced and overdesigned. Harry's bought a world-class blade factory in Germany that's been making quality blades for over 95 years. Join the 10 million who have tried Harry's. Claim your trial offer by going to harrys.com backslash bluewire. All of Harry's blades come with a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. Again, make sure you go to harrys.com backslash blue wire to redeem your razor for $3. Shout out to Justin for coming on the podcast. Again, you can follow him on Twitter at JustinJet underscore. That's at JustinJett underscore. If you have any feedback for me, you can reach out to me and follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Yovan Buha. That's at J-O-V-A-N-B-U-H-A. If you like to read my work, please check out and subscribe to The Athletic. I got a few Clipper stories up there this past week about Doc Rivers for Coach of the Year, uh, Clippers playoff matchups, uh, all that good stuff. So you can start off with a one-week free trial see if you like it, and then decide if you want to keep subscribing to The Athletic for the price of a double-double at In-N-Out. I think I'm going to start experimenting with that in, in uh, the price of uh, a cup of coffee. I've used that a few times. Uh, most importantly, though, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Clip City podcast on Blue Wire. You can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and now Stitcher. Uh, we are on Stitcher. So pretty much anywhere you're going to listen to podcasts, we are on Please be sure to leave five-star reviews, uh, positive comments, uh, apply to me on on Twitter and I'll answer your questions, all that good stuff. Uh, So thank you for listening to episode six and I will talk to you next Tuesday. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in a new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series now streaming on Showtime.